This episode of Sundays with Kate is sponsored by Payoff.com. You've tried balance transfers and budgeting, but high interest rates and unrelenting bill cycles make it impossible to get out of credit card debt on your own. Instead of another new saving technique, you need a clear pass out of debt, and that's what a payoff loan can do. A payoff loan is a personal loan backed by member-centric credit unions designed to help you pay off your credit cards. with rates as low as 5.99% and loan amounts up to $35,000 with no hidden fees and personal customer service support from Payoff to help you reach your financial goals. Some of the benefits of a Payoff loan may also include potential credit score boost, one monthly payment and savings from lower interest rates. Go to payoff.com/sundayswithkate to learn more. Checking loan rates won't affect your credit score. Try something new. Pay off your credit card debt with Payoff. NMLS ID number one three nine six eight zero five. Not all applicants may qualify. Loans only available within the United States. Loan is not available in all states. Payoff works with lending partners who originate the loans. Additional terms, conditions, and eligibility requirements may apply. More information is available at payoff.com/sundayswithkate. What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh. I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica, meeting in the meadow. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Fadl. Welcome to Sundays with Kate, the podcast series about the films of Kate Blanchett. I'm Mortada El Fadl, your host. Every week, we choose a Kate Blanchett film and discuss it with a guest. Between 2008 and 2013, Kate Blanchett was running the Sydney Theatre Company and made only three movies. We've discussed one of them a couple of weeks ago, Hannah. And this week we're discussing the other one. I don't think we'll ever get to the third because that's the Hobbit, and she's hardly in it. But today we're here to discuss Robin Hood, which is another telling of Robin Hood. This time, Robin Hood is played by Russell Crowe. Kate is Maid Marian, although that's not what she's called, and we'll talk about that. And it's directed by Ridley Scott. And my guest for this conversation is Teo Bugby. Teo, welcome back. Hello, hello! It's exciting to be back. It's been many, many moons since our last Sunday with Kate. Yes, you were my very first guest when we discussed Elizabeth in the first episode of the podcast. It's true. I was thinking about how you keep bringing me out for these historical historical pieces. I'm excited for whenever Kate takes on, I don't know, the Renaissance next. <laughs> yes. She is threatening to do an, a third Elizabeth, but we'll see. What <laughs> is it like the death of Elizabeth? Actually, would watch. <laughs> yes, I think it's about Elizabeth dying, being very old and dying. Yes, interesting. But we'll see if that ever happens. But you kind of suggested this podcast. You were the one who brought up Robin Hood because. Robin Hood actually, for me, wasn't in the movies that I had planned to talk about, but you brought it up. The thing about this movie is that I saw it years ago, and I want there to be a payoff to me having sat through this movie. <laughs> 
I wanted to to be delivered my purpose. <laughs> what was the point of me having seen this movie? And it turns out years later, the point is to talk about it with you. <laughs> yes. And that's, I am the lucky guy for that. Um, so, <laughs> so Robin Hood was released in 2010. Um, it debuted as the opening movie at the Cannes Film Festival that year. And like we said, Russell Crowe, Ridley Scott, but also this is a stacked cast. Max von Sydow, William Hurt, Lea Seydoux, Oscar Isaac, Eileen Atkins. You just texted me that the Sheriff of Nottingham is played by Matthew McFadden from Succession. I know who we love. Yes. Tom Wamgans, is that his name? Wamsgans. Wamsgans. So Kate plays Marion Loxley, and this is a very sort of take. Usually it's the character is called Maid Marion because she's a maid, but here she's not. She's um, a married woman who becomes a widow. She is definitely not a damsel in distress. She fights. She even leads an army. She wears she wears armor, even though in the end Robin Hood kind of does save her. So all of this kind of amounts to nothing. But she she literally gets off a boat and gets shot in like the first one second of battle. It's completely pointless. The 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 dynamic here with like it's such a hilariously even though this movie isn't that old, it's only like 10 years old. It's such a hilariously dated specifically to the feminism of like 2010, (laughs) you know, of like, she can't be a real, she can't be a princess. She must fight her own battles. But she also has maybe like a grand total in an 18 hour movie of like 10 minutes of screen time. Like she's the most sidelined Maid Marian. I mean, I have a theory about why Kate took these three movies while she was running the Sydney Theatre Company. Well, it was scheduled, basically. (laughs) She was a busy woman with a full-time job running a theatre company in Australia where none of these movies were filmed. So she probably took the movies that were kind of high-profile. This is a high-profile movie. It's a big-budget studio film, was a big movie star at the time, was a big director. And she is not in a lot of it. So it made sense. She probably shot part in three weeks yeah where do you know where this was filmed it was shot in hungary and croatia so oh, interesting it's cheaper there cheaper but this movie still costs a lot of money yeah it's interesting i was like looking up when i was preparing to come on this podcast i was looking up the kind of production history on this movie and this is like one of the films that was um impacted by the writer's strike um in 2008 so when they were filming i think production had to be suspended because everyone was on strike at that point um and there was no no production happening which is kind of just an interesting footnote like the i think one of the things that i remember from that period was like both the stress of like all of these productions not being able to continue but then also the uh like sort of false panic um that all of the movies that were coming out afterwards would be really bad because there had been no writers on them. But in this movie, that may be the case. <laughs> Maybe did need a rewrite. To what you were talking about was the writer's strike. This movie does have a lot of writers and it had a long sort of gestation period where the script actually started in something called Nottingham, where the sheriff of Nottingham was the main character. And then it, there was an iteration where... 
Russell Crowe was supposed to play both Nottingham and Robin Hood, but then it became this version where Nottingham is not even that much of a character. He's Wamscants. He's our yeah. friend. Yeah, but he's not really in the movie at all. I said he gets a smoochy smooch with Kate Blanchett. He does get a smoochy smooch with Kate Blanchett. He, he's also very rapey. He's like... Extremely rapey. Threatening her with rape every time he appears on screen. Not a very... And this was five years after he played the romantic lead in Pride and Prejudice. So... That is a strange career trajectory. Absolutely. He had he had the misfortune, I think, of being judged against the Colin Firth, Mr. Darcy, when he was Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice, and then was punished for it for a good 10 years, only to emerge victorious now with succession. I mean, Matthew McFadden, maybe he needs his own podcast. Yes. I'm sure it will be very interesting because as I discovered with this movie, I won't know what movies will be. Like when I set up to make this podcast, I knew the movies I'm going to talk about. But if we do one on him, we don't know. Be anything. So the first thing about it, about Robin Hood, is that Robin Hood is a story that we all know. There's so many movies about Robin Hood. They literally make a movie every two or three years that's called Robin Hood. Like if you go and search Robin Hood movie, there are so many answers to that search. So Teo, you have a favorite, right? I do. I I remember when this film came out, I remember being um, relatively incensed because I don't think that there needs to be any other Robin Hood, not just because it's so ubiquitous, but because the 1938 Errol Flynn, Michael Curtiz Robin Hood is definitively the best version of the story in such a a manner that there's no point putting any other version of Robin Hood on film or on television. The visual medium of Robin Hood was wrapped up in a bow it's done. It's completed. It's been, there's, there's nothing to improve. That is a perfect movie. It is a great movie. And I love that movie too. And I haven't seen it in a long, long time. So maybe I need to rewatch that. It's the first movie I ever saw actually in my, in my life. Wow. Um, so that it's such a good movie is also like that. It holds, holds up so well, really speaks to my taste as a two-year-old. Um, but I think is just a, phenomenal it's a phenomenal use of cinema as an artistic medium I mean in in that period of Hollywood filmmaking I feel like it it's underplayed because the movies are so pleasurable to watch but it's underplayed how experimental the style of filmmaking was then I mean that's one of the earliest color films using Technicolor um and I think Technicolor had only existed like three, three color Technicolor had only existed for like three or four years at that point. And you have this just magnificent, lush, beautiful film that is using color in such exciting ways um, that is completely bananas from like a stunts perspective. I mean, one of my favorite stories of that film is that the way that they shot all of the scenes of anyone being shot with an arrow was that they just had the world's best archer come and they would ask the stuntmen to get paid like an extra 50 bucks basically to wear like a wood, a balsa wood vest <laughs> under their costumes. <laughs> and then they would just get this guy to shoot them. <laughs> wow. And that was it. <laughs> that's, 
an incredible film. That's the entire, like, there's nothing that you're going to do in this era of Hollywood filmmaking that will compete with the ingenuity and like genuine daring of that period of Hollywood. It's just like, it's spectacular. It's a spectacular film. Great score, great acting, like career defining performance from Errol Flynn, sort of a career defining performance from a very, very young Olivia de Havilland. Like it's fantastic. I agree. It's great. I love it too. Or what I remember that I loved it when I saw it. I have also fond memories of the Kevin Costner Robin Hood. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. You know, I've never seen it. I'm that loyal to the other one. I've seen that when I was really young and I didn't know much about movies and it was very exciting to see it. And, you know, because it's a big spectacle, Kevin Costner looked good and he had the very famous butt scene in that. Although that's not what I was excited about. I was just excited about the movie itself and about seeing a Robin Hood story. He, his accent is terrible, but he's, he's a charismatic movie star. I haven't seen that, nor have I seen the Carrie Elwes one, like the parody of the Kevin Costner one. Men um, in Tights. Men in Tights. I haven't seen it. I've seen the Disney cartoon one. It's okay. It's not as good. Some people are really horny for that fox for some reason, which I don't really understand. That's a whole other corner of the internet. (laughs) Yeah, I don't understand (laughs) it too. And then there is one that was made just last year, which nobody saw. With Karen Edgerton. Yes. Terrible casting. Totally, I agree. Nobody saw that. So we don't need to even mention it. So let's talk about this version. So I think what Ridley Scott and the 17,000 writers who were employed to write this movie were trying to do is give us a sort of realistic Robin Hood while also telling his origin story. People are always trying to tell an origin story. but Hate it. <laughs> yes, agreed. <laughs> But what they did here is like, oh, let's give, let's give it historical context and let's try and find out who this person is. And there was an interesting nugget in the movie that I really enjoyed, which is I thought in making Prince John, who becomes King John, within the story, played by Oscar Isaac, the main antagonist of Robin Hood, making him so untalented and that his only talent is the fact that he was born into his role and then making, you know, Robin Hood salt of the earth, somebody who just like rose through the rank and became a soldier and has honor and all of that. I thought, oh, that's a good sort of protagonist versus antagonist. But then the movie just decides three fourths into its story to give Robin Hood another backstory. And he's exceptional from an exceptional family. And he's a long stride, whatever that means. And it completely sort of, what I liked about the movie completely crumbles in two minutes. Yeah, it's interesting, like the politics of the Robin Hood myth. And I actually did, for this podcast, like try to get into some of like what the history is that it's trying to sort of depict because... I do think that, yes, the purpose of it, I suppose, is to have some kind of historical pretense, but I do think that it's a pretty jumbled history, and so it's it's a really odd (laughs) in a lot of ways um, from that perspective, and I don't really think it's successful historically, let alone from an entertainment perspective, at which it's a complete and abject failure. But speaking to just, like, the politics of it, 
that in, in itself has an interesting history within like the Robin Hood myth, where this version of the story is a lot less focused on um, the rob from the rich to steal, give to the poor, and is instead like way more invested in kind of the battle history of Richard John and like the sort of feudal system in in a way. And so like that whole history of like, or not history, but that whole story of Robin being first a yeoman and then he's got his own lineage and whatever is itself like a very odd read of, I mean, in a way, like it's the thing that seemingly would matter the most in the 12th century when this is supposed to take place, but it's completely uninteresting from a 21st century perspective. There are some interesting things in that it makes sort of the story of how you get the grain and how you get food and why the young men or the young boys of the village have left. They were forced basically out by the economics that were not sustainable for them in the village. And so it is interesting. There are interesting things. Like all the nuggets are interesting for an interesting movie and an interesting retelling of this, but somehow it just fizzles and they don't really do anything with it. I think that that's partly the question of like too many cooks in the kitchen from a writing perspective. Like this movie really falls apart narratively where there's not any cohesive story that's pushing forward any of this, like these nuggets about like what it was like in the time and so there's no reason to care there's not really like the kind of arc that draws you from moment to moment and so you're just sort of left to wander from like ugly marketplace with dirty men to ugly forest with drowning sheep to ugly battlefields with <laughs> with bleeding soldiers. Um, it's a very colorless world. So visually, there's not a lot driving you. And then narratively, there's not a lot driving your interest. And the movie is two and a half hours long. So it's it's very dull. Like, it's that's the, the primary word I would use to describe this movie. It's a phenomenally dull movie in a way that almost makes it funny to watch, where it's like, it's trying to be dull. <laughs> its purpose is dullness. I would say I was I watched this movie over three or four days. So maybe that's the way to watch it. Watch 45 minutes or 40 minutes and then pause and come back the next day. <laughs> it will be less dull. But I agree that it is just narratively not that interesting. And it also very brown everybody's wearing brown all the time and there is nothing that pops on screen like even kate like i think she they should have left her blonde hair so that could have been a different color instead of giving her a long dull brown wig so even that even that we are deprived of yeah i think the the color question is really interesting Um, partly because it's such a huge contrast to that 1938 version, which is just like the greenest greens Mm -hmm. and the reddest reds and just like the most lush, beautiful color, Um, where this movie, as you said, is very brown and gray. I, I like fell down a rabbit hole when sort of doing the research to talk about this, where I was looking up the dyes, like historically, like what kind of dyes would have been used then? Is it like accurate from a period perspective to say they're all peasants and so therefore they all would be dressed in browns and grays 
And no, <laughs> that's not true. Um, especially when you consider that this movie is depicting a pretty broad class spectrum. And also that is something that the 1938 film does do really well. The people who wear the most color are the people who are the wealthiest and like most entrenched in the nobility. Um, and it's one way that you signify, you know, what is happening from a class perspective in, in that film. Um, but that's totally gone from this. So there's no differentiation from, you know, what Marion, a mid-level noblewoman looks like in comparison with, you know, Oscar Isaac and Leia Seydoux, who are the ultimate royalty within this world, let alone them in comparison with the peasants. I mean, maybe you have a difference of material, like the materials that they wear look different. Like they're mm -hmm. maybe wearing linens and hemp as opposed to silks. But visually that's, it's like you really have to be looking for what's differentiating these people from each other because they're all clad in these like very, very neutral tones, which is boring to watch. I mean, it's like visually yeah. dull. Lacey Du does get to wear white a couple of times. So that's the Congrats only sort to of her. visual difference that I remember from this movie. It's true. She gets to have the blonde hair that you wanted for Kate too. Yes. But let's talk about Kate a little bit because this is a Kate Blanchett podcast. So we talked about she's not made Marion. She's Marion Loxley. And she's shown, she appears immediately at the beginning of the movie in the prologue. And sort of the introduction is to show us that she is somebody who's in control of this manor in charge of the house and the farm and the field while her husband is fighting with Richard the Lionheart in the Crusades in the Middle East. And the movie, this, her story, in, that introduction sort of doesn't belly the story that she's given because in the end, the main thrust of the narrative for that character is that she is in a sort of mismatched romantic comedy with Robin Hood because he comes back <laughs> after he sort of pretends to be her husband, but he comes back, he delivers her husband's um, sword back to her and to the dad. And then what happens is that for taxes, her father-in-law is like, well, he has to keep pretending that he's your husband. So, so there is like a 15-minute sort of romantic comedy in the middle where they have to pretend that, you know, they kind of don't like each other, but then they like each other. And it would have been fun as a short, but <laughs> the thing is as it sort of spread out during the movie, it sort of loses whatever potence it has. Totally. You go like full 40 minute chunks without seeing Kate. And then like all of a sudden are reminded that she's in the movie at all. <laughs> yeah. It seems we are to share my chamber, a ruse to convince the servants. Well, if the aim is deception, should you not be addressing me as my husband or my dear. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. Well, are you coming or not? Ask me nicely. Please, dear husband, will you share my chamber? I sleep with a dagger. If you so much as move to touch me, I will sever your manhood. You understand? Thanks for the warning. So, but she does have a very good scene. Uh, you know, her first meeting with Russell Crowe as Robin Hood, he comes in, he doesn't know who she is, and he sort of blunts to her that her husband died. 
not knowing that she's his wife. And that, and then she has to walk from the barn into her house. And I think that walk is her best moment in this movie. And she shows us like, you know, he is her husband. She lost him. But also there are so many conflicting things because later on we find out that she didn't have that much of a relationship with him because he married her and then he left immediately. And I think when you look at, when you go back and look at that scene, you can see that she's trying to give us the story of that marriage in that moment. Girl. Girl? Either you're going blind or you're looking for charity. <laughs> Are you the keeper of this house? In a manner of speaking, yes. I wish to see Sir Walter Loxley. You are? Robin Longstride. Plain Robin Longstride? No, sir. No, ma'am. No, sir. Are you here about the tax? No. I'm here to bring you a sword. The son's dead. I'm marrying Luxley. Robert's wife. Milady, I owe you an apology. If I'd have known. Bad news is bad news, no matter how it comes. Indeed, I owe you. Thanks for taking the time to deliver it here yourself. Did you fight alongside my husband? Yes. Did he die well? In an ambush, ma'am. He was the man chosen to bring home Richard's crown. Definitely my favorite scene of Kate in this movie is when she gets buried in the mud while she's going for the sheep. Her, she earned her salary for this movie. And that's where, that's the other sort of like romantic comedy, right? So she's in the mud. He's trying to come and get her. She thinks he's going to come and get her, but he takes out the sheep first. And then she's like, oh, now it's my turn. So it's like a funny thing, but it's just like, does it belong in this movie? I don't know. I can't move me legs. Oh, is it my turn now? It's an odd, it's an odd part and I think you and I have sort of talked a little bit about why we wonder why she took this movie. And I do think that the thing that is most charming to me about this as a role for Kate has very little to do with her performance, which isn't bad, but she just has so little to do in the film. But it's more like the sort of Australian solidarity of making a movie with Russell Crowe and Ridley Scott and sort of doing whatever, you know, just kind of being there. <laughs> just yeah. being there, just being on set. Why not? Do you think she has chemistry with Russell Crowe? He is on record on the Graham Norton show that she is his best on-screen kiss of all his co-stars. It's interesting. I think she does. I was sort of surprised because I think I wasn't from the first time I had watched this movie to now, I had really forgotten pretty much everything that happened in it. And so I couldn't really remember what I thought of their dynamic. Um, but I think that they have like a nice, pretty relaxed, older people chemistry, which is not something that there are too many opportunities in films to watch, like a new romance between two adults, like yeah. following. It's not like a first love it's like oh you know, like i don't know maybe we can make this little thing work kind of vibe um and i quite like that i also think russell crowe kind of interestingly seems to get along well with a lot of his female co-stars like i think all the time about um him getting that weird and 
quite charming, but like odd call out during uh, Nicole Kidman's Oscar speech. Yes. You know, she loved him. They love him. They love him in Australia, those leading ladies. And the Oscar goes to, by a nose, Nicole Kidman. (laughs) Oh, Russell Crowe said, don't cry if you get up there. And now I'm crying. Australians stick together. I do agree that Kate and Russell actually have very good chemistry. And I was really surprised by how comfortable they were in their scenes together. And it's just like there was sort of, they played of each other well. I think she, Kate is so powerful on screen that sometimes she overwhelms her male co-stars. And so this was somebody who just in stature and heft was able to stand up to her. And I sort of thought that it worked. Yeah, he's got, speaking of heft, he's got a great hefty stone butch sort of energy that meshes well with Kate's alien lesbian energy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like she needs to have that kind of, there needs to be a little something going on with her, I think, leads. And he's, he's really giving me Home Depot lesbian in this. Home Depot lesbian who gets his own shirt off scene. (laughs) (laughs) And I enjoyed that scene. But when we talk about Russell Crowe, so a couple of things here about him. This was his last romantic lead role. He was 45 when he shot this film. He never played another romantic lead. He never was first billed in a big studio movie after Robin Hood. And also, this was his fifth and last collaboration with Ridley Scott. So this, so Robin Hood is actually the end of an era of Russell Crowe. Basically, after this movie, he's not as major a star, and he doesn't work with his favorite director, Ridley Scott. And this was a troubleshoot, and I think they didn't get along. But also, that could be a reason why he never worked with him again. But a reason also could be that Ridley Scott just moved on to a younger man, and he did move on to Michael Fassbender, basically, who is as, as intense an actor as Russell Crowe, and sort of he, that's the person that he worked on a lot in the, in the decades since. Interesting. With Russell Crowe, I sort of, the energy that he gives off these days is very, like, retired early, yes. which... <laughs> as a, like, I mean, we can talk about the meta-narratives of film stars, as a person, retiring early seems like if you can do it, <laughs> why not? He's not an actor who is lacking for having done great work. Like he really did, I think, in his rise as a film star, turn in a, a whole bunch of really admirable performances. Um, like I love him in LA Confidential. And I just feel like he's sort of at a point in his career where he can do whatever he wants, including not work. I like this sort of Russell Crowe. He's very nice on Twitter and social media. (laughs) He's really funny when he goes on the Graham Norton show. So I kind of like this, his phase of his career. He's not beating anybody with the back of a phone or whatever it is he was doing in the early 2000s when he was becoming a major star. I think from a Ridley Scott, this movie is interesting from a Ridley Scott career career trajectory you know the two things that there were two sort of like things that came to mind for me with this one that it wasn't a particularly successful film 
although it did make like well over, you know, like 300 million internationally at the box office, which isn't, that's not nothing. It's a lot Um, of money. (laughs) It's a lot of money. It was just that the budget was so big that I, I don't know that it recouped everything that it cost, but, but that it was not like a huge hit yet at the same time, I think you have the uh, first seasons of Game of Thrones, which was obviously such a big success and very aesthetically similar, drawing on sort of similar period in history, at least visually, um, and has like a kind of similar aesthetic and was so, so, so successful. And it's funny because this movie feels in so many ways like a total flop, (laughs) even (laughs) if it wasn't. and but it's it, kind of interesting that it could have been something else. Yeah. But then from a Ridley Scott perspective, what I think about is Kingdom of Heaven, which is kind of an underrated film, in my opinion. And a, and I think p- maybe because there's so many different versions of it that people haven't yeah. seen, whatever his mm-hmm. like final choice was or final cut was. But he does like have a fascination, I think, with this period in history. And I don't totally this movie is so unfocused that I don't totally understand what it is about this period of history that he is trying to explore. Whereas in kingdom of heaven, that feels much more clear. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I like Ridley Scott. And if I, if I want to go back, definitely Selma and Louise is probably my favorite Ridley Scott movie. That's the one. Um, I don't like his new movies. The Martian was okay, but I don't like any of the new aliens. They don't hold to the (laughs) aliens of the 80s. I think my favorite Ridley Scott is probably Thelma and Louise, but I also do love, love, love uh, Blade Runner. This cast is so stacked. So I'll say a name (laughs) and you give me your favorite for that actor or actress. Love this. And and then we can dig deeper into mem- other members of the cast. So, William Hurt. Oh, Broadcast News. Broadcast News is great, but I love Body Heat. I know, Body Heat is also great. Max von Sydow. Oh, it's got to be one of the... It's, like, impossible to pick. Like, you have to say, like, the Bergman, the whole Bergman oeuvre, you know? Yes, I agree on on Bergman, but I actually like The Virgin Spring in particular. I really like him in that. And speaking of a shirtless scene, he has one in that too. So go watch that. (laughs) I mean, Max von Sydow is a legend of cinema. And maybe he's one of the reasons why Kate wanted to do this movie, because a lot of her scenes are with him. And when looking at clips for the movie, I found a deleted scene between Marion and Walter Loxley, so Kate and Max. And it's a very poignant, beautiful scene where they talk about how they both miss Robin and that he might be dead. And it's a nice little moment for both of them. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why she wanted to do this movie, to be in a cinema frame with Max von Sydow. Why not? There's a Christian burial. Oh. <laughs> I'll tell on you as a pagan to Robert when he returns from his campaigns. <laughs> Robert is dead, Marion. Who says so? He told me himself. In a dream? No. A visitation in my sleep. Well, he didn't tell me. 
I'm so sorry, Marion. I brought you here to know what I know. Your husband is not coming home. I also know what I know. That your son will ride out of Pepperharrow once again and through the streets of Nottingham with me at his side. Eileen Atkins, who I love her in that, you know, this is terrible to say because she has a huge career, but I love her in that cameo in the hours where she's so shady to Meryl Streep and Ed Harris. With Eileen Atkins, I have to give a shout out to like to Gosford Park, which I think she's so wonderful in and was probably the first thing that I had seen her in. And so it's the thing that I associate her with the most. Love her in that movie. There's also a British miniseries called Cranford, where she and Judy Dench play sisters who hate each other. And I love that for both of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's my kind of show. Oscar Isaac. I love Oscar Isaac. And I think we should talk about Oscar Isaac in this movie, too. I, I mean, inside Lewin Davis, he's so wonderful in that movie. Just like such a wonderful performance. Yeah, he's so wonderful. And I still remember watching Inside Lewin Davis at the New York Film Festival and just completely falling in love with the movie, with the festival and with Oscar (laughs) Isaac all at the same time. So yes, I agree on that one. So what do you think of him playing King John? He is playing a very sort of young... John is known for having succeeded Richard the Lionheart. He was very young when he did that in his early 20s in history. And then he's known as being sort of like not a great king. And so this manifests itself in the story in that he's very selfish and he screams a lot. He doesn't listen to anyone and he just wants to collect taxes. It's a very flamboyant performance from Oscar Isaac. In Like he's by far, I think, the most flamboyant performance in the film like he's sort of out of tone with everyone else where everyone else is like we're in a movie with a lot of gray and brown like let's give a gray and brown performance and Oscar Isaac is like taking cues from his his like extremely manicured beard (laughs) and is like very um fruity in this movie with Mm -hmm. you know there's like a lot of a lot of uh, sauce I would say it's kind of a saucy performance it is a saucy performance, but I don't think it's an entirely successful performance. No, because, I agree. Yeah, to what you were saying, it's just like, it doesn't feel like it belongs in this movie. When they show him in bed with Lea Seydoux, he sort of looks like he's an actor from 2010, 20, 2009. Like when Russell Crowe takes his shirt off, you could, yeah, this is somebody who could have been Robin Hood. Like his body is not gym conditioned, while Oscar Isaacs is. And that's not the performance, that's just the physicality of him. So it's fine. I should not minus points for that. But I just think the shoutiness and the sort of the flamboyance of it and the sort of like it's at 12 at all times is not great. Also, what I love is the first scene between him, Eileen Atkins and Leia Seydoux, where they're introduced in bed. She walks, she's his mom, Eleanor of Aquitaine. She walks on him having sex with Isabella of France. (laughs) And the movie snaps to life in that scene. All actors are... Completely agree. The only good scene in the movie, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) I think some of Kate's scenes are good, but this is a great scene. Yes, the movie snaps to life there. That movie, that movie, it's like the whole movie is waiting for a strumpet. (laughs) 
<laughs> it needs the energy of strumpetry <laughs> to enliven proceedings. But yeah, I agree. That's that scene has a lot more vim than the rest of the film. Ah, oh, hélas, c'est fini. Yes, I know, but it's my mother. That's enough. The purpose of my being in this room is to save the realm. Her uncle is the bloody king of France. C'est vrai. Take up your lawful wife and save England. My lawful wife is as barren as a brick. Is that truly the wife you want for me? You, who honored your husband with eight children, so that even now, when death has taken the rest, you have a king and the runt of the litter to call you mother. Richard de Lionheart is 40 years old, if not more, and no babies. I am a queen in the making. Yes, yes. You see, she is my Eleanor. Yeah, it's it's a good scene, and all of them are playing it to the hilt. I actually wanted a little bit to know a little bit more about Isabella of France because she's. So in that scene, she's just like, she stands up to Eleanor of Aquitaine and she's like, I'm a queen in the making. And Richard doesn't have kids. And you would think that, you know, she's playing somebody who's, I think, a petulant teenager, but she has, you know, stature to stand up to Eleanor of Aquitaine. And I love, I love that and that performance. What do you think of Lea Um, She has two scenes in this movie. I mean, she is like a, a, personal favorite actor of mine and part of I think the reason I saw this movie in the first place was as like a two-year look back once Lea Seydoux had become kind of a star in her own right I was like okay she's in this weird movie like let's go ahead and watch it um she does have like a probably a combined total of like 10 lines in the entire movie um but she looks amazing and does bring like energy to the screen in kind of a fun way. Somebody just like really committing to like, I'm hot and that's what I'm going to be on screen is appreciated. <laughs> like that's more energy than most of the other actors in the film. Yeah. She does have a lot of energy in that scene. And then, but she has a scene where Eleanor sort of convinces her to try and change John's mind about taxes, Oh yeah, yeah which yeah. is the taxes plot is, is important, I know, but it's just not so boring. Necessary. <laughs> Cut it. Cut that. Cut it out. Yeah. <sighs> so, Teo, I didn't ask you what's your favorite Leia Seydoux performance. Favorite overall? I mean, controversial choice. I think it, this movie has had its own history in terms of how it has been received and, and criticized and um, some with very good reason and has its own weird history, but she is phenomenal in Blue is Color. Um, Agreed. Regardless of like what you think of the movie, like as a performance and as like, as an actor, that is like a phenomenal masterly performance. Um, and she's doing so much in that movie to, I think, draw out, a performance from her co-star um she's like giving the movie so much visually so much emotionally like i just think it is like really wonderful i i really enjoy leia Seydoux as a performer for maybe similar reasons that you do kate where 
I'm interested in her choices as an actor in a way that I think that she genuinely contributes something to the film in a way that many movie stars do. And it is like a uniquely movie star quality. Um, but when I'm watching Leia Seydoux on screen, I do feel like there is a certain authorship to be discussed. Um, and I find that like exciting and interesting when there is a performer who tries to do that kind of thing. And that is, of course, like a grand tradition in France. Like she's one in a long lineage of great French actresses who I think approach the screen philosophically as like a, a place to create a, a persona and a, a vision of what it means to be a person. I, I agree on Leia do. I love, love, love her in Blue is the Warmest Color. And I remember the first time I saw that movie, I was just so shocked by her shock of blue hair, but not just visually, but like she somehow manifested somebody who would have blue hair, how they would look, how they would walk, how they would talk, how they would be and behave. And so I just think that is such a great performance. Um, it's a whole sort of visual thing that just, I still remember the way that she walks and the way that she sort of moves in the screen. And I was just like, oh, I've never seen somebody move like that. So it's a very memorable performance that really stuck in my mind. It's true. I also, I do want to give a shout out though to the movies that she made in between that film and this one, uh, Robin Hood, um, because she had several, you know, starring roles in French and other European productions, in particular, um, Farewell, My Queen and Sister, I think are just two really, really wonderful performances um, that were like really exciting when you consider sort of, you know, that a year before, two years before she was this nothing, nothing role in Robin Hood and was like just playing kind of the hot girl from France you know I mean yeah god bless we love those roles <laughs> so which movies are you thinking of yeah so I'm thinking of Farewell My Queen which is a Benoit Jacquot movie and Sister which is an Ursula Meyer film she's a Swiss director um, but just two really wonderful very emotionally present huge presence on screen um, performances from somebody who just a couple of years ago had been the strumpet. <laughs> yeah. And I also like a movie from 2013, Grand Central by Rebecca Zolotowski. And she is in that movie with Tahar Rahim, another favorite of mine. And they're both phenomenal in this story. Very hot. I mean, Very hot too. Yes. That is also <laughs> the benefit of her scenes with Oscar Isaac is that they're both very, very hot. <laughs> Yes, they they are. They look great together. And, you know, maybe Oscar Isaac can play King John if King John, he's probably too old now to play King John because King John is known as the young king. But I would like to see him in, a, in another historical, not necessarily history from, you know, British history, but in a historical context, because I think he does a lot of not modern necessarily, but 20th century and 21st century movies. And I would like to see him act in historical context. That's interesting. Yeah, I could see it. He's the right height. <laughs> we love a short king. We do love a short king. So this is a Kate Blanchett podcast, and we should talk a little more about Kate. And if you've been listening to us so far, and you've noticed we talked about other things and not a lot about Kate. That I think it's indicative of this role. She is good in the role. 
She has a few scenes. We talked about her chemistry with Russell Crowe. That's the best thing that's going for her in this movie. They have very good chemistry, but it is kind of not a big role and kind of not that interesting a role. And it is interesting to me why she took it. And the only reason is I think it was just scheduling allowed her to take it while she was busy running the Sydney company. Because I can't fathom another reason for her to take this role. And this movie went through so many versions. And at one point, Sienna Miller was going to play this part. And because of scheduling, because it was delayed, she had to drop out and she was replaced by Kate Blanchett. So you're like, huh? That's kind of a disconnect here. Like I would never think of them in both stature at the time and stature now in both sort of the roles they play that they would be up for the same role. And I don't want to be mean to Sienna Miller. She has proven herself to be a good actress and has played good roles, but also she just is not top of mind as Kate is for directors or for roles. And I'm surprised that they would be up for the same role. Sienna Miller is top of mind for directors for this kind of role, though. (laughs) How many times has she played wife on the home front? (laughs) Totally. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) She is arguably the number one actress for wife on the home front roles. (laughs) Yes. So you pinpoint exactly my issue is this role. It's a Sienna Miller role that's played by Kate Blanchett. So it's not that interesting. Which I think gives credence to my theory, which is that she wanted an Australian hang. She was living in Australia <laughs> at the time. She had, Kate was, Kate was looking to recreate on a film set, which she already had in Australia. Yeah. It's like three weeks in Croatia. I'm going to do this movie with Russell. It's going to be fun. I will get to wear armor and a brown wig and maybe the movie will be a hit. And they'll give, they'll show me a sheep. <laughs> Yeah, I'll I'll pretend to be a farmer for five minutes. And Ridley Scott is an admirer of Kate, as is almost every big Hollywood director. And he had wanted her to play Clarice Starling in Hannibal a decade before this movie came out. And she turned that part down, which was played by Julianne Moore. That would have been another movie, another not good Ridley Scott movie, but... I think he kept asking her to be in his movies. She did this one, and then he asked her again to be in The Martian. She turned that down too, and that role went to Jessica Chastain. And that's, again, another sort of like... She's the commander of the ship in The Martian, but it's also a supporting role to Matt Damon. So we can understand why she turned Ridley again. Interesting. I wonder if she would have been good as the Matt Damon in The Martian. I mean, you know, my number one choice for all roles in space is Vera Farmiga. (laughs) (laughs) But I think Kate would bring a similar quality that would make her my second choice for all roles in space should go first to Vera Farmiga. If you can't get her, Kate Blanchett. (laughs) So why Vera? Why do you think Vera would be great in space? Just think about her face in space. You know, it's a lot of... (laughs) Exactly. It's a lot of intensity in a, in a big void, you know? I just feel like Vera would nail it. Vera could have been Gravity. Vera could have been The Martian. But if you couldn't get Vera, you know, Kate is right there. If you were worried about, like, the international box office, Kate would have been a solid second choice. 
So our advice to Ridley Scott, the next time you have a movie where you are thinking of casting Russell Crowe or Michael Fassbender or Matt Damon or Mark Wahlberg or all these men, he's always casting in the lead roles in his movie. Think of Kate or Vera Farmiga and the movie would be so much better. (laughs) I mean, would the movie, this movie would have been interesting if Kate played Robin Hood and Russell Crowe played Marion Loxley. Wow. I mean, they do both wind up in the sheep mud. (laughs) Yes. What's the difference? (laughs) So before we go, what have you been watching in quarantine, Teo? There are two things that I've been watching in quarantine, one of which you have not watched, which is the anime series Naruto, and I'm loving it. And there's 14,000 episodes of it, so I'll never run out, which is delightful. The second thing I've been watching in quarantine, I believe, Murtada, you have also watched, and maybe we could talk about it, but is the Hulu series Normal People, and I loved it. Yes, I love Normal People too, and we have spent so many days, because we were not watching at the same time. As with streaming, people's schedules of watching things are different, so you were ahead of me, and then I was catching up, and we were talking about it. Normal People was my watch of the last month for sure it's beautifully modulated everything about it is i I can't imagine the intensity of feeling i mean this is a show that's just about two people falling in and out of a relationship but every single episode has these volcanic emotions and the acting especially from paul mescal is just astonishing agreed and it's interesting when we were watching it, we were trying to think of somebody to compare Paul Mescal to. And I don't think he ever came up, but maybe a good person to think of in, in counterpart to him is young Russell Crowe, both so like cool. in terms of the physicality, but then also sort of the, the navigation of emotional space where he's so vulnerable and so, and at the same time, so masculine and manly and sort mm-hmm. of like that the masculinity is itself coming from the vulnerability that those two are so interlinked and the difficulty of communicating while having to kind of get out all of these intense feelings um, strikes me as something that Russell Crowe would have done very, very well as a young man. Yeah. And I could totally see Paul Maskell doing something like LA Confidential, which is also about a brute, but a vulnerable brute. Although he's not really a brute in um, normal people, but he could play a vulnerable brute because the intensity is there, both physically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. And also, let's not forget, short. <laughs> it's short, yes. <laughs> Tell us what you've been watching and if you are into Normal People and Paul Mescal as much as we like that performance. Teo, thank you so much for coming back to talk to me on the podcast. And before we go, let our listeners know where they can find you and your work. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And you'll have to let me know when we hit the next period of Kate's historical dramas. Um, you can find me at TMI Bugbee on Twitter um, or organizing unions with the Writers Guild. So thanks so much, everybody. And you can find me on Twitter at ME underscore says and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Sundays with Kate. All previous episodes of the podcast are available at sundayswithkate.com or 
wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>